Mr. Chancellor of the Exchequer. Madam Deputy Speaker, a year ago... Tomorrow, Rishi Sunak will stand up in the House of Commons with a new budget and, perhaps more importantly, a spending review which will decide who gets what across government departments. In preparation, the Chancellor has been speaking to the Times, with the economic backdrop looking increasingly bleak. Are there any reasons to be optimistic? It's difficult for government to wave a magic wand and make these global challenges go away overnight. Are there lessons the Chancellor could be learning from the past? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, is the economy going back to the 70s? We're emerging from a global pandemic with global shortages and soaring energy prices. Throw in the effects of Brexit and everyone will tell you we're living in unprecedented times. Except, that is, for one man. I'm David Smith, economics editor of the Sunday Times. David recently wrote a column reminding us of another year when the British economy experienced an unprecedented shock. 1973. That was a year when the economy grew about as strongly as it is expected to do this year. It was also a time when I think people first woke up to the idea that energy could become more expensive. This was a time when the oil producers, principally in the Middle East, decided to limit availability of oil to the UK. Good evening. The Middle East war produced developments all over the world today. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. They will reduce oil production by 5% a month until the Israelis withdraw from occupied territories. Petrol prices went up, ration books for petrol were issued, and it really marked the point at which inflation took off. The government's policy has had a dramatic effect on wages, but food prices, a major family expense, have continued to rise even faster than before. This was a substantial shock to living standards. It changed the way that everybody had thought the world worked. We'd been in a cheap oil era for as long as anybody could remember. And the comparison with 2021 is the fact that we are seeing these much higher energy prices. In fact, the kind of increase we've seen in wholesale gas prices, 300%, was exactly the increase in oil prices we saw back in 1973. So it was a time of great turbulence. It was a realisation that many people had that the good times were running into a lot of difficulty. The 1950s and 1960s are sometimes regarded as a kind of golden age for the UK economy. Then we ran into the problems of the 1970s, which are huge uncertainty, terrible industrial relations. The miners on strike last year... Since then, gas workers, railwaymen, hospital worker, and the only question is, who strikes next? And eventually we got to very, very high inflation, almost 27% rate of inflation a couple of years after. Things got so bad that in 1976, the Chancellor had to resort to drastic measures. On September the 28th, when the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Dennis Healy, had got as far as London Airport, about to fly abroad... He heard the pound had dropped two cents in an hour. He turned round 
having telephoned the Treasury and the Prime Minister, got back into his car and returned to Whitehall. The next day, he applied to the International Monetary Fund for the biggest loan it has ever been asked for. We're only talking about half a century ago. We're not talking about ancient history. This is not a comparison we would like to go back to, but we've been living in a time, in a long period since the early 90s, of very low inflation. So even an echo of that high inflation seems very uncomfortable in 2021. And David, for people now in 2021 scanning the horizon, what are the problems that we should be worried about? There are worker shortages across Europe, but the UK seems to be hit the hardest. Bars and restaurants are struggling to find staff too. Even farms don't have the workers they need. The labour shortages that we've seen as we've moved out of the uh, pandemic are a surprise, but they are real and they are biting. We're also clearly seeing a lot of supply shortages. Some of them are to do with Brexit. A lot of them are just a reflection of what is happening in the world as a whole. Shipping has become both more expensive and more problematical. Port of Felixstowe calls itself the Port of Britain, and it is a vital gateway for trade. There are huge backlogs at ports all over the world, including in the UK. More shipping containers come and go here than anywhere else in the UK. So severe congestion at this port is a problem. The IT people always say, switch it off and switch it on again. But when you do that to an economy, it's really quite difficult. The switching off process meant that a lot of the things that normally happened, like producing microchips which go into a, a wide variety of products, including cars, there's a shortage of new cars at the moment, that all stopped. So when you switch it on again, there are these shortages, there aren't enough people, there aren't enough components, there aren't enough supplies. And waking the economy up, the world economy and the UK economy after the pandemic, is proving to be quite difficult. You can see it at petrol pumps, in restaurant bills, clothes, even second-hand cars. As the economy reopens, prices are on the way up. And David, for a lot of people, inflation seemed like a dim and distant memory. We thought, we haven't seen it for such a long time. It hasn't been problematic for such a long time. That now that it suddenly seems to be back on the agenda again, people are getting alarmed. Should they be? It is very true, as you say, that the people had forgotten about inflation, more or less. And the causes of this higher inflation that we're seeing, one cause is purely statistical. Economists call these base effects. And if the base was very low, and obviously when the pandemic first hit, a lot of prices were quite depressed. So some of the comparisons we've had recently have been with that depressed period. So that exaggerates it. But some of them are real. Some of them will be quite long lasting. Is this because of fuel becoming more expensive? What's causing the sudden hikes? Energy is not as big a component of inflation as it used to be. We use less energy per unit of economic growth, per unit of GDP, than we did in the 1970s when we had a more industrial economy. But it is still real and it is still a large element in people's outgoings. And the thing about energy is it feeds through to so many different prices in the economy. It feeds through to food prices, as do the shortages and so on. So I think we're definitely moving into a period where some of those temporary effects, some of those base effects will fade away and they won't be there for all that long. 
But we'll probably be left with an inflation that is higher than we've been used to. The Bank of England, which sets interest rates, was given independence, was given the right to do that back in 1997. We're almost 25 years on from that. And during that period, inflation has averaged almost exactly 2%. Now, we're going up now to 4 or 5%, possibly higher. And I think it will take time to get back to that 2%. So we may be looking at two or three years in which inflation is higher. That will take some getting used to for people. And for the Chancellor, you know, when he's thinking about his own sums and, and the public finances, this matters a great deal. You know, we're always told not to compare the finances of government with the finances of households. But this matters to the Treasury and to the government and to all of us as taxpayers as much as it does to any household contemplating these higher energy bills, this higher inflation. You mentioned signals coming out from the Bank of England that we might see interest rates going back up again. That'll seem as distant a memory as as inflation being a problem. But is that the right solution for this form of inflation? Would interest rates going up stop prices from rising? The context for this, of course, as you suggest, is that interest rates have been extraordinarily low for a very long period. Now, do higher interest rates do anything to offset an international increase in energy prices? They don't. But, you know, the fact is that the level of interest rates is very low. It is always considered to be somewhat dangerous for central banks to have an interest rate which is below the rate of inflation. Although it doesn't do anything directly to affect some of the inflation coming through. I think many economists would say there was a problem already, even before the latest surge in energy prices. There was a problem of inflationary pressures building up. So that is why the Bank of England probably does need to raise interest rates. We've said very clearly that if we see this uh, becoming a pattern, and we see this risk growing, we would have to act uh, as a central bank. We'd have to act on monetary policy, and we'd have to increase interest rates. But it's not going to do it aggressively or dramatically. The average bank rate in the 1980s was 12%. The average from the early 90s until the financial crisis was 5%. You know, what we're looking at these days is the prospect of maybe the interest rate going up to 1% over the course of a year or so, and then maybe a little bit higher over time. So not the kind of levels of interest rates that we've had in the past. And so I think the bank will be trying to tread somewhat softly, softly in the way it approaches this. But I think it also recognises that if it does nothing, it will have been seen to have abandoned its duty of keeping inflation under control and keeping inflation to that 2% level. One of the most interesting things about your comparison with the 70s, with 1973 in particular, is that Earlier in the year, people would tell you the economy was booming. They were going through a rather good period. There was a real boom. At the moment, it does look like our growth rates are pretty good. Some people will be surprised to think that the economy is still shaky. This is, if you like, the perfect 1973 parallel, because back in 1973, the number for economic growth, 6.5%, was and still is until we get the final figures for uh, this year, the best year for growth since the uh, Second World War. But all of it happened quite early on in the year. And the reason why we'll have a very strong number for 2021 is largely because when restrictions were lifted in the spring from the, uh, the third lockdown, 
The economy grew quite strongly on the quarter. And now, as we've moved through the summer into the autumn, what we've seen is what economists would call headwinds to growth, that from July onwards, instead of monthly GDP rising by 2% or so, it has struggled to rise at all. It increased by 0.1% in July, 0.3% in August, which are you know, really unremarkable rates. So the perception, opening up, boom time, as you say, but then getting into what I would describe as kind of wading through treacle as we've moved mm. through the year because of the shortages, because prices are going up, because consumers are less confident than they were. And that's important because one of the things that we've been left with as a result of the pandemic is this thing we know as involuntary savings. A lot of things that people usually spend on, they couldn't spend. You know, holidays were out, entertainment was out, hospitality, eating out, going to the pub, a lot of those things were either out or restricted. So people built up savings probably 150 billion of savings that they didn't plan to do. You know, as long as consumers are quite confident, then everybody who is in the retail trade or the hospitality business or tourism can be quite happy that they're going to get some of that uh, money spent on them. Four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, take your seats. Have your first drinks. Please come Indoor down. drinking and dining now back on the menu as the lockdown roadmap goes into phase three. But it has not been happening since the opening up of non-essential retail in April. There was a short-lived, you know, one-month surge in spending in shops, in face-to-face uh, -face spending, since which time retail sales have fallen every month. People just have not been spending as much as they were expected to do. And they've also retained some of the habits of lockdown by the fact that the proportion of retail sales that are online has not really come down by very much. The recovery is not as strong as it was in the earlier period after restrictions were lifted. And I guess it's not just that the appetite to buy more and to go out and spend is fading, it's also the fact that when people do, there are shortages, so they're not able to buy as much as they might want to. You see that quite clearly. I mean, an obvious thing for people with large amounts of involuntary savings to spend on would be a new car. September is the key month for new car sales because the registration plate changes in March and September. And September new car sales were the lowest since that change has been made because there are, you know, as you were suggesting, there aren't enough new cars around. The chip shortage has meant that um, people can't get the new car that they want or if they want it, it's like going back to old times when you had to go on a long waiting list. Instead, you know, you've had this weird phenomenon where um, instead of buying new cars, people with money to spend have been buying second-hand cars and second-hand car prices have been booming. Second-hand car prices normally go down or, or, go to, or go up very modestly. And David, if all the different factors that economists are starting to worry about now actually come true, if it all happens at once, how bad might things get? You know, for ordinary people on a day-to-day -day basis, what can they expect? I wouldn't want to characterise this as some great disaster, but I think it's quite important just to put things in context. I mean, if you listen to what government ministers say, Boris Johnson characterises this as a sort of new dawn of higher wages and higher, you know, greater prosperity and so on, whereas 
the higher wages, to the extent that they are there, are going to be eaten up by higher inflation. So I think it's just necessary to have a dose of realism here. This is not the sunlit uplands that they're sometimes characterised. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a tough winter. The economy is still recovering. It's not recovering as fast as it was. And that recovery brings a lot of stresses and strains. And I think that is the way people should think of it. I don't think we're going to have a winter of discontent, but we've had a huge health shock and economic shock as a result of the pandemic. And it takes time to get over these things. Mr Heath now knows more clearly than ever that if he can't get prices under control, his chances of winning the next general election will be slim. And David, without wanting to be alarmist and without wanting to sound like I'm obsessed with the 70s, you know, the economic crisis that sort of unfolded over the autumn and winter did cost Ed Heath's government, lost them the next election. Will there be a political fallout to all of this? I, th- I certainly think there could be. The Heath government took on the miners and they imposed a three-day week. As I recall, I was pretty young at the time, but as I recall, the TV was required to shut down at 10.30. I don't know how that would work these days with uh, Netflix and so on. You know, shops, uh, you know, were not supposed to continue their lighting displays after they closed. So high streets were pretty dark places. One minister got into trouble for suggesting you should save energy by bathing with a friend. And in the end, I think it's quite interesting that Prime Minister has has pretty much played down all these problems, much more than some of his fellow cabinet ministers have done so. And I think if we do see this cost of living crisis, as we are seeing, we will see a cost of living crisis, if it is enduring, if the promises aren't kept about delivering prosperity and so on, in the end, I think all elections are a reflection of voters' views on whether the government has delivered for them or not on what they were expecting in terms of living standards. And I I think that could be quite problematical for the Tories. Coming up, with economic and political pressure mounting, The Times interviews Rishi Sunak. But first... I'm Megan Agnew. I'm a commissioning editor and writer at the Sunday Times magazine. I organise and write interviews with politicians, stroppy heartthrob actors who absolutely don't want to be there, authors, artists and features on a whole range of issues. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Back in 1973, the economic crisis ended badly. Will we have better luck this time? On Friday, Oliver Wright, policy editor for The Times, went to interview the Chancellor. We've got 25 minutes. Brilliant. Um, to sort of kick off, I mean, this is going to be your first budget strict spending review in, well, normal-ish. <laughs> normal-ish time. So how optimistic is Rishi Sunak? It's obviously coming out of COVID. We've got this huge debt that has been built up over the last couple of years. And I think the thing which really worries Sunak is not so much that debt. As long as that debt remains static, it can be paid off over a very large number of years. Mm. But the problem he has and the thing that he fears is that if day-to-day government spending isn't met by the amount of money that he's getting in in taxes, that debt is going to increase. International money markets will worry about that. Potentially, that results in interest rates going up. The amount it costs the government to borrow goes up. And that is the kind of thing that Sunak would say would keep him up at night. The other thing which he has a lot of concerns about is inflation. Part of my job is to protect people Uh, against jobs, make sure that we have the capacity to respond. And that's one of the risks that I have to grapple with, right? The risk of of rising interest rates or inflation and the impact that has on the public finances is something that goes into my thinking about when I'm putting together this budget and figuring out how do we build a stronger economy? How do we strengthen our public finances? We're at 3.2% now. Most forecasters think that that's going to go up to 4%, possibly even 5%. That, in turn, plays into interest rates and the amount that the government has to pay to borrow. And a very large amount of government spending, which I think most people don't even realise, but a very large amount of day-to-day government spending just simply goes on paying the interest on the amount that we're borrowing already. So obviously, if those interest rates goes up, it's just like if you've got a mortgage, you've got less money to spend elsewhere. So those are the things. That's the backdrop, as it were, for this spending review and budget. And I think the watchwords for Sunak will be caution, caution, caution. So, I mean, does that massively limit his ability to spend in the next few years? I think if he had it all his own way... Yes, but as we all know, his neighbour in Downing Street takes a slightly different view on the ability of the government to spend. And I think this is a real source of tension. We've seen it bubbly over in stories. Johnson feels, particularly in terms of spending to invest, that this is what the government should be doing. And you see this in the Green Agenda. He wants to be a Prime Minister who is getting Britain sort of fit for net zero. Green is good. Green is right. Green works. And that is the plan. The green industrial revolution, turbocharged by new Brexit freedoms, with an agenda to unite and level up across the country. 
putting money into clean steel, clean cement, building markets so that Britain is a leader in this. I think Sunak is worried that you cannot spend all this money without knowing where it's going to come from eventually. His point, as the Treasury made clear earlier, was that you can't put all this money onto future generations. We've got to do this ourselves. We can't just keep on racking up the debt. We've got to know where the money is coming from. And that is an ideological divide between the two men. And actually, it's an ideological divide, which in some ways splits the Conservative Party as well. That's the really interesting part about this. You know, we've heard Boris Johnson talking about the green agenda, but also levelling up, which presumably will require more investment too. More money wanted there as well. (laughs) More money wanted there as well. And that's clearly not something Rishi Sunak feels comfortable with. No, I mean, I think he would agree with the principle behind levelling up, but he would say, well, what does it mean? You know, what are we actually trying to do? Are these long-term structural problems something that government can actually do something about? What bits of it can we do something about? It's all very well to talk about levelling up, but actually there are a whole series of different components to that and where does the money come to pay for it? So he's not necessarily opposed to the levelling up agenda. I think he would just want to sort of interrogate it a bit more and see what can government be doing and what should it be doing? Johnson and Prime Ministers have a long and proud track record <laughs> of um, both policy and political disagreements. I'm sure that's not the case with you and you, you and Boris, but I mean, do you know the Prime Minister on everything? Look, he, I, don't, I don't think he's right. Are there any two people? <laughs> he would be on absolutely everything. And, and it would be a bit odd if we did, right? I don't think people would want a bunch of robots around the cabinet table. Right? That, wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't make for good government. You know, I think in journalism, we often see things as personality. And there is definitely personality differences between Sunak and Johnson. But I think there are real political and ideological differences, which are quite heartfelt and doesn't mean one person is right and one person is wrong. They're just coming at things from different perspectives. And Rishi Sunak, you know, for a Chancellor who has spent more than any other for a very long time, it's almost surprising to see that he doesn't really believe in spending that much. No, I mean, that is true. And then, you know, if you look at his past, you wouldn't see him as, you know, the Chancellor whose first act would be to open up the cash book on a scale which is, you know, really unimaginable. I think he also thinks, though, that... COVID has kind of inured people to the amount of money that the Treasury has and is spending. I mean, he argues that this government is spending more than Gordon Brown spent before the financial crisis, that the levels of public spending are actually going up. But people are so used to the Treasury spending billions of pounds that when they announced, say, as they did earlier in the month, £500 million to help the fuel poor pay for the increase in gas prices hardly gets any coverage. People just don't think that £500 million is a lot of money these days. And he would argue, actually, it is a lot of money and we need to change the way in which we see this. We need to get back to the kind of fiscal responsibility and that this involves a mindset both among politicians and amongst the public. This is clearly leading to tensions between number 10 and number 11 and Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. But what about the rest of Cabinet? We've already seen the odd bust up with Quasi Kwarteng. We know that Liz Truss wants more money for the Foreign Office. Will the Chancellor be feeling pressure from across Whitehall? Yes, although he has done something quite clever, which was to get Downing Street and Boris Johnson to agree, horrible phrase, the spending envelope. Translated into human. What does that mean? That is basically the total amount of money over the next three years that the government will spend. 
Now, a lot of that money has already been allocated. So take the NHS, that's all settled. Take defence, that is largely settled. But there are still a whole bunch of government departments who do not know what their spending allocation will be for the next three years. But the total has been agreed in Downing Street. So effectively, it is a question of cutting up that pie. So from Sunak's point of view, I mean, he may have his own priorities, but he can say to Boris Johnson, well, look, yeah, this is the total amount of money we've got to spend. If you want to spend you know, 1.2 billion on this, well, you're going to have to take away 1.2 billion from that. The choice is yours. You're prime minister, of course, but this is the total we have to work in. These are global challenges. And yeah, it, it's difficult for, for government to wave a magic wand and make these global challenges go away overnight, right? That, that it's just something that is, is not in my, my gift or control, as it is not in one of my colleagues. But where we can make a difference, we are. There are going to be difficult conversations. I know that the spending bids that have been put in by departments, they've all emphasised how what they're doing is a prime ministerial priority. They're up against one another for that. And by Wednesday afternoon, we'll know what those real priorities are. Politically, which of them is taking the hit? You know, who are the ministers blaming? Are they blaming Rishi Sunak or Boris Johnson? It's hard. I mean, as we speak, they don't actually know exactly how much they're going to get. Over the coming weeks, we will see whinging, we will see warnings. You know, if only we'd got more money, we could have done this, that and the other. But this is pretty normal fare in spending review terms. But I just think this year is particularly tricky. And for people at home, you know, for whom normally the news of a spending review might just pass them by, a lot of people are already starting to feel the pinch. Universal credit, for example, the £20 uplift is going away. Fuel prices are going up. How will the spending review, how will the budget, how is it likely to affect their day-to-day lives? Weirdly, I think it's things outside of this budget that is most going to affect them, as you, as you alluded to. You know, inflation is going to have a huge impact. If prices go up by 5%, but your salary or your wage only increases by 2%, you're going to be 3% less well off. And actually, there ain't so much that the government can do about that. I think for most people, they'll look at the budget and shrug, because I think that's entirely intentional, because Rishi Sunak wants to make his March budget the big one, and he has to hold one legally. So the bigger part of this is the spending review. It does affect people in terms of, you know, your kid's school, how much money do they get? That has an impact. And a Again, local council services, one of the big interesting questions will be how much money local councils are A, allowed to raise in things like council tax, because they could be an increase in the amount that they're allowed to raise, which will you know, impact on people's bills, and the amount of money that they get from central government at a point at which the pressure for them to do more with less is very real. So there are, there are elements there that are worth looking out for and are going to be interesting. But I think the bigger picture is inflation and interest rates. And if they do end up spending more than Rishi Sunak wants to on things like education, are we likely to have to pay for that in taxes maybe later in the year or next year? Certainly, both Boris Johnson and Sunak are agreed that you know, they don't want to raise taxes. We've already seen the rise in national insurance to pay for the NHS. But I think it is really interesting and really significant that when Boris Johnson is asked to rule out future tax rises, he doesn't do it. Now, that may be an abundance of caution, because if you're in government, you never know what you might need to do in the future. And they were burnt in their manifesto because they promised that there wouldn't be a rise in national insurance. And hey-ho, they went and did that. But I think it is significant that when asked that question, they're not prepared to repeat their manifesto pledge. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, if, if you compare it to the pandemic, they're often 
very ready to make judgments about whether this is the end of the pandemic, whether life goes back to normal, it's irreversible, all those words which, you know, preclude any kind of caution. But when it comes to taxes, it does make it seem like that's more likely. It's an important part of being Chancellor is making sure that the economy and public finances has the resilience to cope with whatever comes our way. And as we've seen over the last 18 months, you know, stuff comes our way. And when it does, you know, governments need to respond. The real truth of this is that they are not in control of their own destiny. There's only so much they can do. And the spending of some entire government departments is really just a sort of percentage point on what happens to GDP and economic growth. And it is what happens to interest rates, it's what happens to inflation, it's what happens to government debt over the next couple of years that is really going to determine not only the prosperity of the country, but the ability of the government to fund public services in the manner to which everyone's become used. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Times policy editor Oliver Wright and The Sunday Times economics editor David Smith. You can find all of Oliver and David's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producer was Edward Drummond. The executive producer today was James Shield and sound design was by Falcon Kisselduk. For live budget day analysis tomorrow, do tune in to Times Radio on DAB, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.